Welcome to Food Psych, a podcast about intuitive eating, body positivity, and health at every size. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm a registered dietitian, nutritionist, and certified intuitive eating counselor specializing in weight-inclusive wellness. Join me as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships with food. Hey there, welcome to episode 82. I am, of course, your host, Christy Harrison, and today I'm talking with Jonah Solman of Solman Nutrition and Wellness in Wellesley, Massachusetts. So Jonah is a fellow health at every size and body positive dietitian, and he's also the husband of Joanne Solman, who was on the podcast several weeks ago. And if you heard that episode with her, you heard me say, oh my God, it sounds like Jonah has a fascinating story and I want to talk with him too. And so I did, and it was fascinating. We got into his history with food and the role that exercise and movement played in his development of his relationship with food and his background as a personal trainer as well. So we talked a lot about intuitive movement and exercise in this episode, which I think is super important for anyone who's recovering from a disordered relationship with food and exercise, right? To start relating to movement in a non-instrumental way. So we'll get into those concepts a little bit in the episode and so much more. Can't wait to share it with you all in just a moment. But first, I want to point you to a couple of great resources for making peace with food. The first is my free quiz to assess if you have a healthy relationship with food and see where you fall on the spectrum from disordered eater to intuitive eater. I'll send you your results via email along with more than a dozen individualized tips to help you make peace with food wherever you may fall on the spectrum right now. So take the quiz and get your results today at christyharrison.com slash quiz. That's christyharrison.com slash quiz. The second resource I want to share is my intuitive eating online course. So you've heard me talk about this on the podcast before, and it's a 13-week program that I created to help you work through all the principles of intuitive eating really in depth and demystify and troubleshoot some of the common pitfalls that I see people getting stuck in. So I'll show you how to recognize the diet mentality, even in its subtle forms, and how to start substituting healthier thoughts instead. This is definitely the thing that people consistently have been saying is the most eye-opening and revelatory aspect of the course is the exercises to help you break down the diet mentality and notice the diet mentality as it's showing up in its subtle forms. Because, you know, a lot of people think, oh, I'm not on a diet. I don't diet. I don't believe in diets. And yet, when you start looking at your thought patterns, you can actually see how the diet mentality is present in your thoughts, even if you aren't actively, quote, on a diet or admitting to yourself that you're dieting. So this is an aspect of the course that I think is super helpful for building towards the other principles of intuitive eating, like making food and exercise choices from a place of self-care rather than a place of self-control, right? Honoring your hunger and your fullness and learning how those feel in your body, learning how to use those cues to help guide you and helping you get back in touch with satisfaction and pleasure in eating. Because for those of us who have had any sort of diet history, it really cuts us off from the sense of pleasure and satisfaction. So the course will help you get back to being able to feel and trust those feelings. You can learn more and sign up for the course today at christyharrison.com course. That's christyharrison.com course. 
And finally, if you like the podcast and you want to help us reach more people who need to hear the body positive message, you can leave us a great review on iTunes. Just open up iTunes on your computer or the little podcast app on your phone, the purple app, type in food psych to the search bar, click on the result that comes up under podcasts, and then go to the ratings and reviews tab. There you can leave a rating and reviews sharing what you love about the podcast. And I'm always so grateful for the nice reviews. They really mean the world to me and kind of make my day when I see the positive reviews come in, sharing how the podcast has helped people and led them to healthier relationships with food. And so if you leave a review sharing what you love about the podcast that helps other people get the body positive messages that they need to hear. So it's really a public service, as I've been saying, for you to leave a review. It not only helps us and helps the podcast grow, but it also helps other people who are struggling. And actually, just one more quick thing. I just added this announcement after the fact because um, I just created some new products that can help you spread the word about body positivity and also help benefit a good cause. So I created um, t-shirts, tank tops, and tote bags that say body positivity is a political movement with a really fun... um, image, uh, like it's a cute little logo kind of thing. And um, those are available only for the next four and a half days. So if you are listening to this episode, the week it comes out, they're still available. But um, by the dropping of the next episode, the sale will be over. So get in on it while you can. It's a super cute message. And also there's um, a wide range of sizes available. So the t-shirts are available up to size 5X as well as the tank tops. Um, the tank tops are unisex and the t-shirts are women's and men's styles. And then of course there's a cute tote bag, which is for anyone. Um, so go check it out at christyharrison.com slash shop. That's christyharrison.com slash shop. It's a great gift for any anti-diet warriors in your life. And now, without any further ado, let's go talk to Jonah Swolman. I spoke with him via Skype from his home in Wellesley, Massachusetts. So tell me about your relationship with food growing up. So the house that I grew up in, it was kind of interesting, especially as it related to sugar. On one hand, I I did a lot of baking growing up. My parents were very permitting of that. And I I often experimented with my own recipes to to various degrees of, of success. On the other hand, in some ways, sugar was kind of restricted. And so when we when we found ourselves, and when I say we, I mean my brother and I, when we found ourselves around it, sometimes sometimes there was a tendency to to overeat. I remember there there was a while there when I was a kid where whenever we whenever we went to say like a holiday party or something like that, me and or my brother, we we would overdo it to such an extent that that there is a, a very good bet that when we got home that night, one of us was going to throw up from having, having overeaten. And so it was almost kind of this, this joke sometimes. So it's not really funny, but it kind of was in terms of like the, this joke about like, okay, which one of us was going to be the one to throw up that night. And sometimes it was him. Sometimes it was me. And what, what eventually happened was my brother, he's four years older than I am. It got to the point where he was, he was sneaking food. He was, he had sort of the, this stash of, candy and, and things like that in, in his room that my parents didn't know about. And that was his way of coping with the restriction. And what happened one day was he came home, he had gotten ice cream, I think, out of the house when he wasn't really supposed to. And he came home and he had chocolate on his face from the ice cream. And that was kind of the gateway to the conversation. And I think I'm actually the one who ratted him out and told my parents about his about his stash. But at that point, my parents realized that they were, that they, you know, my parents were, were fortunately 
open-minded and they realized that they'd been restricting things too much. And so they started to loosen things up at that point. But there are some residual effect from that too. So like going into my adolescent years as a teenager, I spent a lot of time at my at my best friend's house. You know, he and I played a lot of ping pong together, watched TV, things like that. And whenever I was over at his house, he had all these foods that we didn't have at my house. You know, he had Pop-Tarts, he had soda, he had pastries, he had ice cream, stuff like that. And I used to eat way more of it than he did. And it got to the point where his parents started buying food specifically for me and asking him like, okay, well, you know, what flavor of Pop-Tarts does Jonah want and stuff like that? (laughs) It, It wasn't until much, much later in life, you know, until I became a dietitian that, and, and I started getting into the, you know, intuitive eating aspect of things and, and, and starting to better understand the, the long-term effects that restriction can have, that I started to be able to look back on those years and, and really start to understand, I think, what was going on. Yeah, it sounds like you were really reacting to deprivation, kind of even after the fact. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I think there, there's, there's even a little bit of residual effect in terms of, you know, that, that overeating that I described, you know, that's, that's long over. And, and I'm, I'm very much more an intuitive eater now. But I mean, there's still, there's still this aspect. And I, I pointed this out to my wife recently, that if she and I are say, you know, because we're, we're dietitians, we're interested in food, whatnot. So sometimes we'll just go walking through a grocery store, just kind of get a sense of, you know, what food is out there, what kind of food are our patients have available to them or whatever. And, and whenever we pass by the sweets, whenever we walk through the bakery or the ice cream section or the candy aisle or whatever, I get kind of excited and I'll, and I'll point out those foods more than I do say the savory foods. And it doesn't necessarily mean I, I mean, sometimes I buy them, sometimes I don't, it doesn't necessarily influence my consumption of those foods, but there is definitely this, this heightened awareness of those foods that I think is is still left over back from my childhood. Yeah, for sure. Do you think that your parents were restricting those foods for perceived health reasons or were they struggling with their body and dieting or what was the reasoning behind that? I think it was for perceived health reasons. So for example, the times that we were allowed to have soda, you know, the brand Snapple that's out there now, well, Snapple used to make soda way back in the day. I don't know if they still do or not. I haven't seen Snapple soda for around for a very long time. But my parents used to buy uh, on the rare occasions when they did buy buy soda, they bought the Snapple soda because it, it didn't have any food coloring or anything in it. And so it, it was really for for health reasons. They were very big into buying organic, staying away from fr- preservatives, staying away from food coloring. I think the sugar was was kind of part of that too. It was, it was really more for for health reasons, I, I think, than anything. So it was kind of this proto clean eating movement almost, like the the sort of first wave of organic and health food and that sort of thing. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, I mean, part of it was, I think with, with every iteration or you know, with, with every generation that comes out, you know, sometimes I think we look back on the way that our own parents raised us and we think about, okay, what was great about their parenting style and, and, and what do we not want to repeat this time what do we want to do better and so i think on my on my parents especially on my mom's part i think there's a lot of looking at the way that that food was incorporated into her upbringing and she didn't want to make the same mistakes with us and i think that you know so so she was definitely well-intentioned i think that maybe she just kind of overshot things a bit with my grandparents so her her parents for example 
they were brought up in the Depression era. And so there's a lot of this forced eating. You had to finish everything. Food was often, you bought the cheapest stuff. Didn't matter if you liked it or not, you just had to eat it. And that was how my mom was raised. And so she wanted to make sure that for us, she got food that she perceived as higher quality. And she wanted to make sure that she wasn't forcing it upon us or the, the same way. But I remember I, I used to feel a lot of stress whenever I ate with my with my grandparents because they tried to do that same thing to me that they had done to my mom. And, you know, my, my mom was great because she would she would stick up to them and, and not try and let them do the same thing. But there was still a lot of pressure on me, for example, to, you know, if I was eating with my grandparents, that if I didn't finish everything that was on my plate, I, I knew there was a very good chance that my grandfather was going to speak up and say something. And that created a lot of stress. And so that that's something that still actually, I still struggle with sometimes too. Like if I'm, say, Joanne and I, Joanne, my wife, you know, if we're out at a restaurant and a portion comes, I, I know there's no way I'm going to be able to finish it. It's way too much food for me. It makes me anxious because I'm kind of like, well, it sounds kind of silly, but it's like, I'm, I worry, like, is the waiter or the waitress going to get mad at me? And then I realized that, no, that's just sort of me projecting. It's sort of like thinking that the way that my grandparents reacted, that everyone's going to react like that, even though I know that's not true. And so for me, it's part of reminding myself, like, no, the, the waiter or waitress, they, they don't care. They're just doing their job. I don't have to overeat. I don't have to please anybody. But, you know, I can definitely understand where that where that came from, from my upbringing. Yeah, for sure. And I think a lot of people identify with that. You know, a lot of people go through that sort of instilling of values as a kid of like, you have to clean your plate because we came here with nothing or because, you know, there's like a lot of pressure sort of morally almost to like appreciate and finish the food that you're given. And it sounds like your mom tried to get away from that and almost took it in the opposite direction. But there was there was that pressure around you all the time, which I think is something that I find with people that I'm coaching on intuitive eating. That's a value that goes so deep, you know, that thing of not wasting food and finishing your plate, that that's a really hard thing to tackle. Yeah, absolutely. Is it a generational thing, do you find, with your with your patients? Like, do you find that it tends to be, say, more like the, the older folks, or do you find that it's not related to age that way? That's a good question. I think it's somewhat that. Like, I definitely have seen people whose grandparents were that way or whatever, and not so much their parents. But I think it might also be a socioeconomic thing, too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. People who've gone through the Depression, like, that would sort of influence their whole value system even i mean my grandfather also was a child of the depression and like doesn't really do that so much with food but is very thrifty and frugal in other ways and sort of looks down on things like getting rid of old clothes and getting a new wardrobe or like he keeps his house while well, he just moved into a home but when he was living alone he kept his house at like 50 degrees and would just wear yeah bunch of sweaters and coats, you know, like, sure. so I think there is something to that kind of mindset of even if you have, you know, enough now, there's this memory of not having had enough and the fear of going back there. And I've definitely seen that in people who grew up poor of whatever generation, like that there is a sort of that food insecurity really leaves a stamp, like leaves a mark on you. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think about one of my current patients who, who's who's done a lot of work with, with binge eating, but he was brought up in a, in a household like that where there was some food insecurity. And so when when you when they had food, there was a, a lot of pressure to, to finish it and understandably so. And so even though 
food security isn't an issue for him. Now there is that residual effect of the household in which he was brought up. Yeah, which makes it, I think, all the more deep and just a more of a process to untangle. Because I think there are a lot of people who self-impose that restrict binge cycle, like through dieting. And I certainly was one of them. You know, I think that was so to me coming out of that and reassuring myself that I would have enough and would have access to food again and that I could have a snack whenever I wanted to was like a huge piece of the healing, but also like came a little bit easier maybe because I had never gone through a period where I really didn't have access to food in like a real way. So yeah, I think it's definitely something to consider, I find, when working with people. It's like, did they actually have a period of real food scarcity? Because of yeah. course that's going to make it feel unsafe to not eat all your food or you're, it's going to make you feel anxious you know, about your food security going forward, of course. Yeah, definitely. And, and you bring up a good point in terms of food scarcity can come about for lots of different reasons, whether it's the Great Depression or poverty or dieting. And I think that, you know, one of the things that often comes up in in my work as, as people are recovering from that kind of stuff is, or recovering from dieting, I should say, is the stalking technique that Judith Matz describes in, in Beyond a Shadow of the Diet. I find that it, it often takes a, a bit of a leap of faith for patients to do that, but it tends to be very effective when they do. Yeah. So stocking up on the foods that they want and making sure they have them available anytime. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and making sure they have them around in abundance. So it's not just having one bag of Doritos around, it's having 10 bags around. And as soon as, as soon as you finish one bag and you're down to nine, you go out and buy another. So there's always 10. So there's never that. Of course, it doesn't have to literally be 10, but that's the idea that you are always have such a large quantity of, of it around that you're that there's never a threat of it running out. And that tends to be such a key component of, of stocking. So that, that can be a really effective technique that I find for people who are recovering from the self-imposed food scarcity of, of dieting. But it's often, it sounds so counterintuitive to, to patients to, to bring in, you know, if, if, they're, if, they're, if a certain food is triggering for them in terms of like triggering for binges, it feels so counterintuitive to them to well, let's bring that food into the house and let's bring it in in massive quantities as opposed to saying, well, if the food's a problem, let's get it out of the house, which on, on a superficial level sounds sounds like it makes more sense, even though it actually exacerbates the problem. Exactly. I think that's the thing that it's like you're making an investment in yourself and you're telling yourself like this is always going to be available. You don't have to feel deprived, you know, kind of giving yourself a visual reminder even that that is true versus this idea of like, well, it's triggering, so I'm not going to buy it. Or see, look, I went through that whole bag in one sitting, so that means I can't have another bag in the house, which of course then just reinforces that deprivation mindset of like, I can't trust myself around this food, so I'm not going to have it, and then makes it all the more appealing. Yeah, exactly. So it's you know help, helping people to take the long view of it and to understand that when they first bring that that food into the house, whatever that taboo food is, that yeah, they are probably going to overeat on it for a period of time. They are probably going to be eating it at times when they maybe don't really want it just because it's it's around. And if and if they and if they react to that quickly and and that 
reinforces to them the fact that, you know, or, or the opinion that they have a problem with the food and get it out of the house again, that's not really going to work. But if they can take the more long-term view and understand that that's part of the process and, and they can kind of roll with that and process it together, then, then they tend to do pretty well with it. Absolutely. I find that too. I call it the honeymoon phase, like where you just sort <laughs> yeah, of exactly. go nuts with a food that had once been deprived. And that's so normal to be feeling compelled to keep eating those foods that were once off limits. But that doesn't mean that they should be off limits. That just means you have to go through that phase and really normalize those foods again so that you can move on. Yeah, exactly. It reminds me of, so we just did our Halloween candy shopping. And I often, you know, sometimes we have candy in the house. Sometimes you don't, it, you know, it's, it's, it's nothing that we intentionally restrict or, or whatever. It's just sometimes we have it, sometimes we don't, but we hadn't had it for a period of time. And we did the, we did the Halloween candy shopping. And so suddenly we had so much of it in the house in the first couple of days, I was, I was eating a lot of it. And then I, I started to realize uh, like, when I took a more intuitive eating approach to it, I realized, you know, when I really pay attention to this, I was like, this is really, really sweet. And it doesn't necessarily make me feel all that great if I have more in a couple pieces of it. And sometimes I, I do want something that that's sweet and that's totally fine. But, but oftentimes it, it doesn't really quite hit the spot the way that I maybe thought it would, you know, this, this idea of like candy by definition is great or whatever, you know, and that's kind of left over from my childhood days. Right. I mean, it's, it's sort of that aspect, but when I, I'm able to take a step back and just look at the food from a, a neutral standpoint and just say like, well, it's just, it's, it's candy. It's just, it's just like any other food in the pantry. It's not a party or whatever. It's, it's neither good nor bad. And just kind of look at how it makes me feel. I realized, no, I, I actually don't really want it all that much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that you get to make that decision yeah. versus ha- versus feeling out of control around it because your body's just so deprived and physically and psychologically you sort of need it versus you don't need it and you can make the choice to have it or not have it and the ball is more in your court. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I mean, last night I had some candy. I was I was feeling like it and you know, I stopped when I felt like it had enough you know, in terms of like internally feeling like I'd had enough. And so that was a good experience as opposed to it being like, oh, well, there's candy in the house, therefore I, I better eat it while it's here type of thing, whether I want it or not. Totally. Yeah. I used to feel like when I was in my disordered eating days, like if it was there, it was calling to me from the cupboard yeah. and I had to just go get it or fight myself all day if I was home. But now candy sits in our cupboard often and I have it when I want it and it's no thing, you know, and I don't have to have it if it's there. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of an amazing transition. You know, there really is, even like, you know, three or four years ago when I was pretty much fully recovered, but hadn't quite gotten to the last step of thinking like, oh, I'm actually normal about food now. I was thinking of myself as still someone who couldn't keep certain foods in the house or whatever. But then I started to, and I realized oh, this is just fine. You know, I used to think cereal was a thing that I couldn't have around that would trigger a binge. But now we have cereal every day and there's cereal in our cupboards that just sits there and is there for us until we finish the box. So Wow, that's great. It's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so going back to your story and sort of how you made the transition into this place you're at now, what was it like for you in adolescence and maybe going away to college too, in terms of your relationship with food? 
Yeah, I mean, it was interesting. I actually saw a dietitian for the first time, or actually the only time when I was 16. And that actually helped me a lot. I only went for, for two appointments. And the, the reason I went was I, I was training for, believe it or not, I was training for a marathon at the time. My, my best friend, he and I used to run track together. And he was saying to me, he's like, oh, you know, someday I want to run a marathon. And you know, being a dumb 16 year old, I was like, well, hey, why don't we do it now? Sounds like a great <laughs> idea, right? And so, wow. so, he and I were, we were training for, for a marathon and I was getting pretty restricted with my eating in terms of, I looked at all the other guys on the, on the track team and I looked at the guys who were better than me, who were faster than me. And I observed that they tended to be a little bit leaner than me. They had more muscle definition. And so I, I the way that I, that my adolescent mind interpreted that was, well, if I, if I restrict my intake of fat, dietary fat, then I will lose body fat and therefore run faster. It, totally not true, but that's how, that's how my mind was thinking at the time. Yeah, it's amazing those myths you pick up just sort of from culture or whatever. Absolutely, absolutely. And fortunately, my parents, particularly my mom, was savvy enough to recognize that that wasn't it, you know, she sort of recognized a red flag, I guess I would say it that way. And so she she quickly brought me to a dietitian who explained to me how my ideas were, were kind of off base. And she particularly talked with me about the, the roles of dietary fats and the benefits of dietary fats. And, and I was thrilled. I, I was so happy to, to feel free to be able to, to have fat again. And so so that really helped me. Once I got out of the house and, and went off to college, I mean, I think that I don't know. I mean, I, I don't really, I mean, I think there was probably a heavier emphasis on sweets, I'm thinking, than probably some of my peers. But I don't think that really set in, I think, until a little bit later, until like my my mid-20s, my late 20s, that it tended, tended to be this, this really kind of like obvious rebound from sort of the restriction of my childhood. It was almost, it was almost kind of like it, like, missed those college years and, and missed early 20s. And I kind of picked up a little bit later in life. It was kind of strange like that. Yeah. What do you think triggered that? I'm not really quite sure. I mean, I think that in sort of like my mid my mid 20s, I think that's when my living situation, I think that's when there started to be more candy around and, and stuff like that, that that my roommate was was bringing into the the environment. And I think that having that stuff around really kind of triggered triggered those old feelings. Whereas I think that maybe prior, I just wasn't in an environment where those things really got triggered in the same way. But that's really the best guess I can, I can make. Yeah, because you had never really worked through those old feelings about candy. It just like kind of fell off the radar for a while. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I, I'd certainly never worked through them. And I also, I think, wasn't put into a position where I, I had to work through them. You know, and, and then and then suddenly, suddenly I was. That kind of draws a parallel to sometimes the work with that I do with my patients in terms of they they maybe sometimes try to rather than try to work through an issue that they're having, they just try to to work around it. And and I can certainly relate to that. But one of the things that I try and do, I I, I guess I I feel like it's kind of part of my job is to help them think further down the road and to to think like, okay, well, if they, if they don't really work through this right now, I mean, of course, that's their, that's their right, that's their business, that's their choice. 
But if they don't, what are the potential ramifications of that? You know, are there circumstances in the future that they might find themselves in where this is going to come up again if they don't deal with it? And and I think that that's something that I can certainly relate to because of because of my own relationship with food. That's really smart. I like that idea a lot. Figuring out what it is that you're sort of still carrying from childhood or formative experiences in your life and how that could sort of manifest down the line, which I think dieting can for sure trigger that stuff too. Like for me, I had some isolated incidents or I guess messages around food that were not so helpful in childhood, but didn't really affect my eating. Mm -hmm. It was just like hearing my parents be sort of fat phobic and sort of demonizing themselves for eating too much sometimes. But in the way that they related to my food, there was never like, oh, you can't have this or this is bad or you need to lose weight or anything like that. So I kind of just went about my business. But I think once I started dieting, a lot of that stuff from childhood sort of came up again. You know, the fear of fat. I had had like a brief period of emotional eating when I was 10 years old. So that sort of identity as an emotional eater came back to me. I was like, oh my God, I've been doing this. And this is something that I use to cope with my feelings. Not realizing that, again, the self-imposed food insecurity of dieting had been really the driving force of that, I think, for me. But it, it's just, it's interesting, like the way that it can kind of sneak up on you and be triggered by just circumstances in life. But I think dieting is a huge, huge trigger for so many people. Oh yeah. I mean, it, it sounds like those messages got internalized. And even if it wasn't apparent right away, they were, they were in there somewhere. And so when you, when you did get into that situation later, then they, then they started to come up. Yeah, exactly. Cause I think I was like, you know, had thin privilege my whole childhood. And then I gained a little bit of weight in college. And that's when I think all those messages came up where it's like, oh, I was okay when I was thin and didn't have to think about it, but now I'm not fitting into my clothes and I've gained weight. And what does this mean? It must mean that I'm fat, you know, and that oh, and yeah. all of the stigma associated with that. So, I mean, that's part of why I think my heart really has attached so much to this like health at every size and body positive movement because I feel like I experienced even as a thin person the stigma that people face in larger bodies and the stigma that society creates around fat and I really kind of get how it can happen to anyone but then of course people in larger bodies also have the outer stigma too so it's like nobody is immune to this and we have to do something to change those messages that people are getting because they just can lead down such a disordered path. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So when you started to have those feelings around candy and stuff in your mid-20s, did you then like seek help or what did you do to process that? No, actually, actually, I, I, I didn't. I probably should have, um, but no, I didn't. It wasn't until really my my mid 30s that i think i i think i started to really kind of work through it and that and that was i think a lot through starting to take some of the things that i was learning professionally and seeing how it applied to myself for example there are certain times in my mid 30s where i was dealing with stress by sometimes eating candy when i when i didn't really want it and some sometimes i would eat until i was maybe like you know, not, not like going to be sick or anything like that, but, you know, on like a, an intuitive eating one to 10 scale, maybe I'd end at like an eight, just sort of like overly full. And then I'd realized, well, first of all, that candy didn't even really taste good. 
I still have whatever it was that was causing me stress. That's still there. That didn't go away just because I ate candy. And now I'm overly full on top of it. So what, what was that really about? And I started to realize what it was about was that I equated candy with kind of happier times. You know, I equated candy with fun and, and stuff like that. But then I started to realize, well, yeah, maybe I associate those things together, but it's, it's not causal. Just because I eat candy doesn't mean I'm going to like suddenly become happy and have a good time. If, I, if I'm stressed out, it's not, it's not going to do that. It's just candy. And I think really starting to understand that kind of stuff and understanding how the candy was physically making me feel. And again, I'm not anti-candy. There are still tons of times when I have candy if I, if I want it, and I think that's totally fine. But what I'm describing was, was times when I, I didn't want it when I was having it for, for other reasons anyways, and kept on eating it for other reasons and being able to take a step back and, and look at that kind of like, well, if I was a patient coming into my own office, you know, how, how would I help the person who's, who is describing these behaviors to me? And now, and that was really how I, how I started to work my way out of it. That's cool. So were you a dietitian already at this point? And how did you make that career choice? Yeah, I was, I was a dietitian already at that point, but I wasn't doing I didn't even know what health at every size was at that point, although I kind of knew what the ideas were, but I didn't know it had a name. I got into nutrition in the first place because when I was in college, I had to have a, I found out I had a tumor on my spine that I had to have removed. And that was really traumatic for me. I remember being in the hospital, the things that I saw with other patients, you know, I remember recovering from the surgery, for example, and and walking down the hospital hall with my brother and a dead guy in a gurney gets wheeled past us and does, you know, and stuff like that. It was just, it was just, it was so traumatic. And I had this kind of overreaction of wanting to take really good care of myself to make sure that I minimized my chances of ever ending up in the hospital again. And I, and I, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say I was orthorexic, but I had some of those tendencies, you know, in my, in my early twenties, it's funny because when you were asking me about my early twenties before, I didn't really put two and two together until, until right now, but there was, there was a lot of fear for me at that time in my life. There was a lot of fear of getting sick. There was a lot of fear of dying. And so that's when I started to take a great interest in food in terms of how I thought I could eat to minimize my chances of getting sick or, or passing away to myself. And so that's, I think, that was my gateway into nutrition. And then I finally decided to go back to, to school to study it formally. It wasn't until, until later that I, that I came about the ideas of, of health at every size and intuitive eating. And it, it, it made a whole lot of sense to me, but it was something that I, I, I certainly did not know right off the bat when I decided to get into the profession. Oh yeah, me neither. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think for so many of us, it's like it's not taught in the basic curriculum, so you sort of have to come to it through further education or you know stumbling upon it through reading and stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think I think my first exposures were, I think one. So so I mentioned I mentioned that I ran a marathon when I was sixteen. I actually ran. I didn't finish it that year. I came so close. I got to like. 24 point something and dropped out of the race and then the next year i dropped out of the race too and so i went back and tried to do it a third time so when i was 16 17 and 18 i ran marathons and i noticed that a lot of the people who were faster than me they were all shapes and sizes they were all ages and that was one of the things that started to 
open my eyes and, and help to break down some of those stereotypes that I had in terms of, you know, I mentioned when I was 15, 16, I had this idea that that if you were a great runner, you looked, you had a certain build. And if you wanted to be a good runner, you had to have that build. And part of it was doing those marathons and seeing the other runners and realizing that that wasn't true. And then when I was in nutrition school, I had a couple of professors who were in bigger bodies and they used to talk about what it was like and how hard it was for them to be taken seriously in their professions and, and you know, given the size of their, their bodies. And we used to talk about that kind of stuff. And so that was part of it. And then I had an energy metabolism professor who he was the first one who talked about the concept of, I, I hope this isn't an offensive phrase to say, but the fat but fit concept. Oh, yeah. He was the first one to talk about that. And that really, that really made a whole lot of sense to me because that, that kind of harkened back to the, to the marathoners that I had seen as a teenager in terms of like, yeah, that, that makes sense. You, you, you can be bigger and still be fit. And so th- those things started to plant the seed in terms of health at every size. It wasn't until a little bit later in my career where I actually started to, I had the freedom to be able to practice it. But those experiences when I was a little bit younger definitely helped to plant the seed for it. That's so cool. I love that, that you sort of stumbled into that point of view at a young age without even really realizing it, just by yeah. looking around <laughs> and kind of seeing what was what was out there. And so how did you start? And I know you're a personal trainer too. So I'm wondering like how that played into this career change or were you doing that before you decided to go back to school for nutrition? Yeah. So I decided to become a personal trainer while I was in school for nutrition. I, I remember working out one day at the gym and there was this, there was this guy I was kind of friendly with and he came up to me one day and he's like, are you a personal trainer? And I said, no. And he's like, well, you should be. <laughs> wow. And I don't know how he meant that. I don't know if it was like, Hey, you're, you're over-exercising. <laughs> I don't know if it was a, if it was a criticism, but the, the way I took it at the time anyways, was as a compliment. And I was like, yeah, maybe I should do that because to me, there, there's such an overlap between nutrition and physical activity, but in, in nutrition school, you, you don't really cover a whole lot of physical activity because that's not really what you're there for. You're there for nutrition. So I felt like, well, if I want to learn more about the physical activity aspect of things, I, it seems like I need to do that on my own. So I decided to get certified as a personal trainer and I took some exercise science classes too while I was in nutrition school. And so I worked as a, as a trainer part-time while I was going through nutrition school. So that was pretty interesting. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, so we were talking a little bit earlier off mic about intuitive exercise and this concept of bringing intuitive eating principles to movement, which I want to get into. And I'm just curious how that evolved for you. Like, what was it like starting out in personal training? And did you do the the traditional thing for a while of burning calories and, and this and that? Or was it a little more kind of health at every size oriented from the start? Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's a good question. So, I mean, I think I think with both a personal trainer and my career as a dietitian, both of them, I feel like I didn't really get off on the right foot. Like I kind of look back at both of them with honestly a bit of embarrassment in terms of, I really don't think I was a good dietitian for a lot of my early patients. I don't think I was a good personal trainer for a lot of my early clients. Because I've been a dietitian for longer, I had a chance to grow out of that. Whereas because I was a personal trainer only for a few years, I think I was starting to get it as I stopped, but I didn't really get to, I think, blossom in the same way. I mean, I, th- I think initially when I was a trainer, it was a lot of, okay, you as the client, you're coming to me telling me what you want to work on. 
let's say, for example, you're a high school basketball player and you want to get better at your sport. So then I would do some research to figure out what what exercises basketball players, you know, quote unquote, should do. And then I would go through those exercises with you. And it didn't really matter if you liked them or not. That wasn't really anything that we really considered. And, and, that, and that was kind of the way that I went about things. And then later, as I started to go on, I started to realize the, the importance of the enjoyment aspect of it and also how were the exercises that we were doing, even if they seemed good on paper, how were they actually working or not working for the patient in terms of did they physically feel okay, you know, or were you leaving the gym in pain? And so I remember, for example, I had this one, all of my clients were adults, except for, I believe, two, I had a 15 year old girl and, and an 11 year old boy. The 15-year-old girl really did not want to be there. <laughs> that was a different case. I'll leave that aside. But the 11-year-old boy, he really wanted to be there. And he and I, we worked together for quite a while. And we had a really good relationship. And he had a lot of fun doing certain things. And then there are a lot of things that he didn't like doing. And so I started to come up with different games. You know, He liked, for example, to play catch with the football. So we would do things like I'd build in lateral movements, front and back movements, where he and he and I would be playing catch while he was doing these movements. So it was almost like he didn't even realize that he was actually working out at the same time. He just thought he was playing catch. But it was fun. Like he enjoyed it. And I started to realize that we can get a good workout. It doesn't have to be taxing. It doesn't have to be painful. It probably shouldn't be those things. It can be enjoyable. It can be fun. And it can be something that actually feels good physically. And that's and that's I think when I when I started to make the make the transition. But then at that point, I, I finished nutrition school, I had to start my dietetic internship. And so I, I stopped being a trainer. But you know, it, it's interesting to me to think about how my, if I continued as a trainer, where where my career might have gone in that respect. Yeah, it would be so interesting to at some point down the line, maybe bring it back or integrate it, which I'm sure you do in some ways with your clients now, you know, talk about movement from that perspective, at least. Yeah, we, we definitely talk about it now. And it's you and I were, were talking a little bit about this off the air, but we were, we were talking about how for a lot of patients who are maybe working their way out of a, a diet mentality in terms of food, they related to exercise, they've looked at it through the lens of their weight in terms of physical activity being a tool for, for weight loss. That's how they've always perceived it. And so that oftentimes doesn't really lend itself to enjoyable exercise as kind of a chore. So a lot of these patients were doing things that they don't enjoy, just even if they're working with a trainer, the trainer, the trainers are often very much like how I was at the beginning in terms of just making them do things, you know, sort of like the no pain, no gain type of mentality. And so then when we talk about the idea of intuitive eating and how that relates to physical activity in terms of maybe I'm making up the term in a way, but I don't know if any other people use this term too, but like intuitive exercise in terms of, well, what kind of movements actually feel good for your body? What do you enjoy doing? That's a foreign concept to them because it's hard for them to think that there, there is any physical activity out there that they would actually enjoy. And so then it's sometimes hard for them to, to even open themselves to that possibility. But if they are willing to open themselves to that possibility, then they can start to consider different things. And so maybe it's not going to a gym at all. Maybe it's, for example, going contra dancing or something like that. You know, something that's, that you and I might see as physical activity, but they don't see as physical activity. But it, and indeed, it, it obviously is, but they don't view it as that way because they, 
they're used to seeing physical activity as lifting weights or using the elliptical, for example. So it's helping them to understand that, no, those movements, those physical movements that they actually like, you know, whether it's dancing or walking the dog or whatever it is, that those things can be a part of their life. And those things can have health benefits, whether it helps them to lose weight or not. Yes, absolutely. I love that. I love the concept of intuitive exercise. And I've used that a bit with my clients too. And in my online course, And I have a, a sort of exercise that I do with people sometimes around relating to movement as you would relate to hunger and fullness, like your desire for movement or your desire for rest. Because I think that's an important piece of it too. There's a sort of no pain, no gain mentality in fitness in general, you know, and the, the way that most of us were brought up around fitness was a little bit of that. And some coach yelling at you or some PE teacher yelling at you, you know, or you pushing yourself because you wanted to lose weight. But there's a totally different way of looking at it, which is like you can actually have and people do actually have intrinsic desires for those things. Like you can notice how that feels in your body if you want to move a certain way or want to stretch or, you know, you're sort of attracted to a, a type of movement versus if you're like just wanting to sit on the couch and nest and sort of relax and your body feels exhausted and not up to the task, like that is also something to honor. I think that those feelings in your body actually can tell you what type of movement would feel good or is this a day of rest? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The body's trying to, trying to tell you something. I mean, I, I noticed that a lot with myself, you know, there might be days when I am planning a, a long run, for example, but I get out there and, and I get to the end of the block and I'm like, you know what? not really feeling it today. And so I just turn around and go home. Whereas say 15 years ago, 20 years ago, that would have been very difficult for me to do. But now I understand that it's my body's way of trying to tell me something. Or with swimming, for example, I oftentimes I go swimming once a week, but there are some times when I just don't feel like getting in the pool. And I know that that's my body's way of telling me, you know what, it's time to take a little bit of a break from swimming. So maybe I'll skip it for a few weeks and then I'll get excited to get back in the pool. And I know it's time for me to to go swimming again. And so it's, it's, it's paying attention to those kind of things that can be really helpful. That's so cool. And I think it is so different from the mentality of forcing yourself into it. Or like when I was recovering, I was, I got really into yoga. And of course, at first I was using yoga for very instrumental reasons and sort of as a type of fitness. So if I didn't feel like going to yoga one day, I'd be like, no, you got to go to yoga and like be really <laughs> yeah. sort of fighting with myself. But there were a few moments where i decided not to because there was, you know, maybe something on my mind that I needed to like attend to, you know, some work I needed to get done or some self-care that I needed needed to do. And I realized that like the world didn't end if I didn't go to yoga. And sometimes I, sometimes yoga wasn't the self-care I needed. I was thinking of it partly as self-care and partly as punishment at that point. I think I started to realize that if it doesn't feel like what I want to do at some level, and I feel like I'm pushing myself into it, then the self-care aspect just isn't there at all. Yeah. I mean, it's so great that you're able to notice that and to also honor it, you know, recognize when it seems like you're better off doing something else rather than forcing yourself to go to the yoga. And then you're able to actually follow through on that and you can do it without feeling guilty for it. Yeah. I mean, I mentioned to you off the air that I, I ran a marathon 10 days ago and that was my first marathon in a long time because I had two spinal fusions in the last two years and I couldn't run for a while. And I realized after the race, I was like, this is the first time that I've ever run a marathon where my body felt good. Like all my joints felt fine. Like historically, whenever I ran a marathon, 
something always hurt, whether it was a knee or a hip or my one of my Achilles or a foot or something. I always had a nagging injury because in the past, what I always did was I always pushed through it. Whereas this was this was the first time that I, I trained more intuitively in terms of recognizing when I needed an easy day or when I needed an off day or whether I needed a, a non-running day and needed to do some cross training or whatever. And so I, I think my, obviously there's other confounding factors, but I, I feel strongly that that's probably why, you know, that's probably why if I ended this marathon feeling better than I have in any others, because I think I, I think this is one where I respected my body the most. That's so cool. And yeah, because you didn't aggravate those parts of your body that had given you trouble before when you noticed they were acting up, you stopped or took it easy or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think I think maybe even got, um, I, I don't even know that I let things get to that point. You know, I, I think because I was, I was so able to recognize when I needed a rest that I never even got to the point where I, I had any nagging things cropping up. For example, it never, it never got to, to the point where, oh, my knee is acting up, I better take it easy. I think because I would recognize even before that when I needed a rest that nothing kind of flared up. So I think I, you know, I was pretty happy about that. <laughs> yeah, that's super cool. That's, yeah. that's really good self-care. And it definitely takes a long time to get there, right? I mean, I know for my, my own life, it's like now I definitely can feel not guilty about not moving and feel good about the movement I choose to do. And it doesn't always have to look a certain way or be the exact same thing every time. Like some days I'm like, okay, I feel like getting out of the house. I also have to go grocery shopping. What if I just walk to the grocery store that's like kind of our closest one, but still kind of far and like carry the bags home. And that's, I'll use my energy for that. And that'll be getting out and moving. So, you know, it doesn't have to be a structured practice necessarily either. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I, and I think, I think the first point that you made, I'm really glad that you brought it up because it's so important is that it's definitely a process. You know, I'd hate for, I mean, the, the examples that I gave about myself and we're talking about years. I mean, I'd, I'd hate for anybody to be listening to this and feel like they're just supposed to change all of a sudden in one day because they've heard this podcast or whatever. I mean, it's, it's obvious, it's definitely a process and it takes a lot of time and it, and it takes work. So I hope that people out there listening to this will be kind to themselves and, and, and be patient with themselves if it, if it's hard for them and take some time for them to make this kind of transition. Yeah, that's such a good insight. Cause I think that's something that I try to remember to say in the podcast, and I'm not always the most vigilant about saying, but I think it's really important to remember everyone who's sharing their story here has been going through this for years. And I really try to talk to people only who've who've been through it and come out the other side and really fully recovered and can provide an example of what life is like beyond disordered eating and disordered exercise. But that means that everybody sharing their stories has years of history behind them of going through this. And that's not something you can expect to achieve just overnight, but just kind of knowing that it's a possibility and knowing that this is a place you can get to if you just keep putting one foot in front of the other, but you can't just jump from point A to point B, you know? Yeah, exactly. So yeah, that's cool that we both have kind of ended up in a place where movement is not punishing and not compensatory either. It's so much more fun too. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm enjoying yeah. it this way. Much more fun. I think about all those times, my early twenties, when I forced myself to exercise because I was scared of dying. 
you know, and that's how I was relating to it. I mean, those workouts weren't any fun. You know, it was funny because I, I, I wrote a blog about this a couple of years ago where I was exercising so much and I was so rigid with my food choices. You know, guys in the locker room used to, when I'd be changing, they used to talk about my abs. Like, oh, it must be like great to, to look like that. It's like, I was miserable. I, I was really, really unhappy. And I don't look like that anymore, but I'm healthy and I'm so much happier. And I, and I enjoy exercise so much more than I did back then. Yeah, I think that's so important to remember and to keep underlining for people that because really what we think we're going to get from having the abs or from having the sculpted whatever, you know, is like happiness. Like that's what we're really, that's what we've been trained to associate with that because that's what sells ads. And that's what, you know, there's a sense of if I can just achieve that, then my life will be good. And I I'll have to like buy the products and do the exercises and whatever to get there, you know? But I think the undoing all of that is really important because it doesn't make you happy. And most people I've talked to I mean, pretty much everyone I've talked to who's been through this says that when they were at their lowest weight or had the most visible abs or whatever the hell it was, they were at their least happy, you know, that that was a miserable time in their lives. So why are we striving for this thing that we think is going to bring us happiness and it's actually bringing us misery? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I think it's interesting because sometimes I get patients who come in here and they refer to people that they've seen out on the street or at the gym. They talk about like how, how much their lives would be better in, in such and such a way if only they look like that person who they're referring to. And it's like, well, what they don't know is that that person is, you know, there's a good chance that that person's coming in here too, because they're so unhappy with their lifestyle and everything that it's taken for them to maintain that look. That person might be here trying to loosen things up so that they can have, say, more of a social life and have more fun or whatever the case is. And so it's just interesting how we often project on other people what their life must be like because they look such a certain way. Absolutely. It's like that quote, don't compare your insides to someone else's outsides. <laughs> oh, I've actually never heard that before, but I like that. Right? Isn't that good? I think it came about from uh, social media and how people sort of compare themselves to other people's highlight reels. You know, that's what, oh, that's sure. what they're choosing to share on social media. But I think it's so true of bodies as well. Like you're looking at a person's body, not understanding what they've done to look like that or not done in some cases, but what is going on behind the scenes, what is going on inside their head, that's more important than the body. But the body is sort of becomes this symbol for people of like, oh, if I could only achieve this, I'd be happy. And it's like, well, is the person with that body happy? That's what you have to ask, you know, and you can never truly know that from the outside. It's really what's going on in their head and their life. I think sometimes people pose as though they have it all together and and have so much going on and going for them. But then behind the scenes, they're miserable and falling apart and questioning everything and not having a social life and stuff like that. So, you know, just be aware that that's probably going on for a lot of the people you see and compare yourselves to. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have no idea what's going on with somebody when we when we just pass them on the street or when we see them at the gym or in the grocery store or whatever, you make an excellent point. Perfect point. I mean, all, all we're seeing is the outside. We have, we have no idea what's really going on with them. We have no idea how happy they are. We have no idea how healthy they are or anything like that. Exactly. And I think that, you know, even if in some cases, maybe they are just fine and that's how they naturally look for some small percentage of the population, still it's like each person has their own way that their body is meant to be in their own healthy weight and set point. And sometimes 
the way that you are meant to look when you're practicing healthy behaviors and good self-care is not going to look like what someone else looks like, even if they're also practicing healthy behaviors and self-care for them. You know, it's like you can't compare and you can't say, well, this is what I want to look like and then do things to get there because that's going to take you away from what's actually best for you and good self-care for your body. Exactly. Yeah. Very well said. That's a really important point. Yeah. And I think that goes back to the the health at every size and body positivity stuff, right? Because to get outside of the paradigm of, well, if I just lost a certain amount of weight or if I just looked like this person, this is my weight goal or whatever. It was very revolutionary for me as a dietitian to learn, like, you can't just go along with that. You know, I now practice in a way where I, if someone does come to me, which is rarer these days, but if someone does come to me saying, I want to weigh X or I want to lose X pounds, I'm like, I'm sorry, I can't determine that for you. I can't do that. We have to just teach you how to nourish your body appropriately and see where it lands. Like, so there's no way it's putting the cart before the horse to say you want to be X weight and then do something to get there. Yeah, exactly. And that and that's a tough conversation to have. You know, it's that's something that people understandably don't want to hear. If they're coming in expecting one thing and then they hear that, that can be tricky sometimes. Yep. Totally. I mean, which is why my marketing has evolved so much over the years, because I definitely experienced those frustrating conversations early on where someone came in not really knowing what I was about. And I was like, I can't actually do what you're asking me because it's not <laughs> ethical or supported by science, you know, but it's it's disappointing to them to hear that, of course. Yeah, definitely. I feel like now I can I avoid those conversations more because of just everything I've put out there about myself. It's like people probably know <laughs> at this point. But yeah, I'm curious how your practice evolved in that direction too. And like, where did you start out and how did you discover health at every size and body positivity and intuitive eating? Yeah, I, I think for me, a lot of it was, like I alluded to a few minutes ago, kind of starting off my career on, on, on not such a great foot in terms of not to let myself off the hook, because I'm not, but I worked at a practice where I didn't have the freedom to counsel how I wanted to. And it's my fault for staying there. That's why I'm not letting myself off the hook. But while I was there, it was very focused on weight. And it was very much like, you do these things and you will lose the weight, even though though there was absolutely no evidence to back that up. That was very much the way that they practiced. And so obviously it didn't work. You you and I both know that didn't work. But I think that during my time there, really seeing it not work and seeing the impact that that was having on patients and seeing, seeing the ramifications of emphasizing the focus on weight and the dangerous things that people would do and how we really were not recognizing or treating eating disorders properly either and really exacerbating them all, all those kinds of things. And I also remember during my dietetic internship, sometimes with my preceptors, I remember witnessing arguments between patients and my preceptors in terms of the, the patients swearing up and down that they were doing certain things and, that, and the preceptors literally yelling at them saying like, no, if you were doing those things, you would be losing weight. And it's like, you can't just assume that the patient is lying and that our meal plans are so perfect that that's the way it's going to work. I mean, it doesn't. So I think seeing all those things made me start to think, you know, there's really going to be a better way. And then talking to colleagues and seeing that they were actually going through the same thing. You know, Ellen Glovsky, I'm sure you probably either either know her or at least know her name. 
she's been a big mentor of mine here here in Boston and and talking with her and and you know she's she's so experienced and has been doing this for so long and talking with her and her saying the same thing like yeah she she and her peers were finding the same failures of the the weight focused the diet focused approaches and that's why she doesn't do it anymore and and finding other ways and so i think it was through talking with her my firsthand experiences some peer supervision that I was doing at Multi-Service Eating Disorder Association, Meta, here in Boston, doing some work with them. That's when I started to realize that all these things that I was forming in my mind actually had names. <laughs> you know, intuitive eating had a name. Health at every size had a name. And when I realized that they had those labels, that, that enabled me to integrate myself more into those communities and to meet more people who are doing those types of approaches. And when I was able to connect more with those people, then I was, of course, able to learn more. I started reading books and talking with people more and doing more supervision. And that's, I think, when things really started to to take off. And, and of course, by that point, I, I guess I should have mentioned that that four years ago, or actually, no, I take that back five years ago, I started my own practice. And then four years ago, I finally left that medical clinic where that very weight-focused medical clinic, I, I left that. And at that same time, my wife also left her her position at the clinic where she was working and she joined my practice. So at that point, she and I were 50-50 partners. We had our own private practice. We could do whatever we wanted. So we we weren't at the mercy of our of any bosses before. We weren't forced to do anything anymore. We could we could provide the quality of care that we thought our patients really deserved. That's awesome. And I think that's such a an important point for anyone going into the business of health at every size and intuitive eating, that it's hard to find an employer or a workplace that really supports your use of those principles. And sometimes it can be done. You know, there's definitely cases where it works, but I think largely the people I know who are doing this work are in private practice working for themselves because, you know, it's much easier to be able to practice with the integrity and the the ethics that you want when you're working only for yourself. Yeah, totally. I mean, I could, I mean, if we had another three hours, I'd be happy to tell you, tell you more stuff about the, the place where I used to work. But I mean, oh, it was like, it was like everything you knew about science and healthcare and behavior change went out the window when you walked in the doors of that place. I remember once getting called into my boss's office because she had ordered a, a quote unquote detox for one of my patients. And this girl walks into my office the orders from the doctor were this 28 days of no gluten, no soy, no dairy, no eggs, no peanuts, oh. no sugar. The list goes on. And this girl also had a history of an eating disorder. I forget exactly what kind, but I was like, I'm not going to do that. And so I, and so I refused to do it and got called into my boss's office for it and, and, you know, got disciplined for not following through on the doctor's orders. It was that kind of thing. And so it was, it was tough. Again, I'm, I'm not, I'm not excusing myself just trying to explain like it was it was very tricky on one hand to really feel strongly that the quality of care just really was not ethical. But on the other hand, I was a human being who had to earn a living just like everybody else. Of course. And so my bills don't go away. If I quit my job, what do I do? And so going back and forth and and in hindsight, I I definitely wish I I left a lot sooner. But, you know, at the time, it was a very difficult situation. At least that, that's, that's the way that I felt. And so I, I really don't feel good about the work that I did there. And, and I, in fact, I, some of those patients who have followed me from there, I've, I've since apologized to them for the way that things went. Mm. I think that's so 
powerful to sort of own and realize that because there's so many of us in this field who've gone through similar things. And I have so much compassion for that. We do have to earn a living. And what we are taught in our training is so weight focused and so not based on turns out the best available science. In a lot of cases, even if we are taught that in our training, then we go work someplace that isn't based on that kind of evidence-based practice. And I've also seen a lot of people get into a place where they're making a lot of money and getting a lot of attention being coaches or nutritionists or whatever, doing a specific diet plan or detox or what have you. It's lucrative and it's appealing to be like sought after for your guidance, you know? So I think there's so much like psychologically in us that can pull us and psychologically and practically and economically, you know, that can pull us in that direction. And I think I, I just have a lot of compassion for for everyone who's gone through this transition along with me because I did it too. And I think it takes a lot of soul searching and reflection and difficult conversations with yourself to make the choice to leave that paradigm. So I think it's awesome where you ended up, you know, and I think I certainly have patients that I want to apologize to as well from from my past, but also we all have to go through some sort of transition with this stuff so we can see like, oh, actually that didn't work. Yeah. It's helpful to hear you say that and to, and to know that I'm not alone in that. I mean, I think, I think a lot of people, it sounds like including yourself have gone through some type of professional transition. I think that other people are more forgiving of me than I am of myself. I like to think I hold myself to a higher standard. And so I've just, I, I found myself just being pretty hard on myself for those years. But I think, I guess the upside of that is it, it makes me strongly not want to do that again. And to, you know, there's nothing I can do to, to change those years, but I can going forward, make sure that I don't repeat those same mistakes and to really try and do the best I can for my patients going forward. And so I, so I, I try to at least reframe it and, and that, even though I still kind of like, you know, cover my hands in embarrassment when I, when I think back to, to how I started off my career. Yeah, I so identify with that. It's it's sort of a delicate balance, right? And I think recently on the podcast, I just did sort of a three-episode series about the ethics of practicing as, as a nutrition or wellness professional and how it's just not ethical based on the science we have to date to recommend weight loss anymore. And yet, yeah. I sort of have had these very strident conversations and I now have these very strong beliefs that that is true. But there's this other side of it that's like, I have so much compassion for people going through it and who might be listening and saying like, oh crap, like my whole business is built on this lie and what have I been <laughs> doing to people and like, how do I change that? And panicking, you know, and I don't want to instill panic in anyone because I think it's it, that doesn't help move the needle either. You know, I think approaching it with self-compassion and just sort of opening up to the possibility that what you've been doing actually isn't working is a huge step. And if you kind of let that guide you and not get too bogged down and feeling like terrible about yourself or guilty or ashamed, then you can actually move forward and make those transitions without as much stigma on yourself, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a parallel between what we were talking about earlier in the episode where we were talking about the years that it's taken people like you and I to, to change our relationship with food, our, our relationship with physical activity, and how people who are going through it right now, or maybe if they 
remembering to have some patience and compassion for themselves that it does take some time. And I think that translates to the professionals as well in terms of like somebody who, who has been, say, doing a lot of weight loss or whatnot up to this point. And then there's, they, they have that moment where they start to realize that maybe that's not something they want to continue doing or should do or ethically can do. There can be that, that period of transition for them as well. And so that we can professionally have some compassion and patience with them too, because I mean, I think you and I have just spoken about how, how it, it took us a while to get out of that. And so I think we can relate to that. So like if somebody say goes to their first lecture for health at every size, and yet they go back to what, you know, work at whatever weight loss clinic they're working at, well, maybe it's going to take them a little while to work out of that. I don't think we expect them to quit their jobs just because they've heard one lecture. You know, <laughs> no. That's an extreme example, of course. But I mean, so I mean, I think I think the the concept of, of patience, I think applies to both sides of the table. Yeah, very well said. I think that's it's so true because I've been thinking recently about how like I really want to smash diet culture in all its forms, but I don't want to smash the people who are purveying diet culture because they're just people, you know? It's, yeah. This is like we all have our our journeys and we're not all the same. We're not all these immutable figures, you know, like I never would have thought five or 10 years ago that I would be doing what I do now. Yeah. I think just giving yourself compassion and time and patience and like steeping yourself more and more in this world, eventually that cognitive dissonance will really build and you'll, you'll make a transition. But if you don't do that for a year or two or whatever, that's okay too. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that, that's very true. I mean, I mean, people who are taking that kind of approach, I mean, they, for the most part, I mean, at the risk of overgeneralizing, i I think they think that they're actually helping people. Yeah. I can't imagine a lot of those people who are putting people on diets and, and promoting weight loss or whatnot realize the harm of it. I mean, they they think that they're helping. Like you said, that they're just people too. I mean, it's interesting. There there's a, a conference that I that I go to every year here in Boston. It's a very I'm gonna use the word mainstream. I don't know if that's the right term or not, but it's a it's not a health at every size conference by any means. It's primarily doctors. There's a few dietitians who go. It's doctors from all over the world, and they come to to talk about things like cholesterol, hypertension, diabetes, and then of course there's a maybe I shouldn't say of course but there's a weight component because to them weight relates to all of these. And so it's interesting going year after year and seeing they can't quite seem to bring themselves to where you and I are at right now, but there's definitely been a transition over the years. For example, I think it was a couple of years ago, the very last day of the, of the conference, there was a panel and there was a bariatric surgeon on the panel. And he brought up, maybe we're focusing on weight too much. Maybe we're performing surgery too much. He said, look, you know, over the last three days, we've seen all this data showing that, that weight and health are, are much more independent than we've previously thought maybe we really are focusing on weight too much and it was interesting seeing how they reacted i mean there's several hundred people in the room at that point there was silence there was some nervous laughter and and there was this really long pause like no one really knew how to react and then the other panelists came out with some statements about associations or whatnot and, and the question was dismissed very quickly but it, it planted i think a little bit of a seed in some of the people's minds and it's interesting, I went to the conference again this year, just a couple of weeks ago, and there's a lot more talk about the failures of diet and all the things that you and I talk about, but yet they, they still can't bring themselves. You know, if you only went to the first, say, three days of the conference, 
you'd almost think they were aligned with health at every size. And then you go to the very last day and then it's about all about dieting. And it's almost like they can, they can do everything to lead up to the punchline except actually say the punchline. But I think that someday they probably actually will be able to because I've, I've seen that progression over the years and it seems like that's what it's leading to, which I think is pretty cool because to me, at least it shows progress. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting to see where the culture evolves with all this stuff because, I mean, that is super promising that people at a bariatric surgery conference or people who are so invested in weight loss seem to be moving towards saying the thing about health at every size and then actually standing behind it or actually practicing it rather. Yeah, that was pretty cool. And I mean, I've, I've talked with some of the presenters off the record, you know, I've gone up to them in, in between sessions and I've talked with them about health at every size a little bit. And they'll, I remember talking with one person in particular, one doctor, she'd given a presentation about, about weight loss. And I went up to her afterwards and I was talking to her about the prevalence of weight regain. And she's like, yeah, she didn't push back at all. She, she actually agreed. She's like, yeah, it's, it's just biology. Wow. But to her, it was almost like she didn't know. And I see this with some of my patients as well. It's like they don't know that there's an alternative. It's kind of like it's either if we're not focused on weight, then what? It's almost like there's this void. And so it's almost like they don't know that there's maybe intuitive eating and other ways of relating to food and relating to health that aren't focused on weight. So it's almost like even even in the face of all the data, even though they recognize it, they go, they, it's almost like an elastic, you know, they go back to the weight loss model anyways, the, the diet model, because that's, that's the only thing they know. And they don't, they don't know what else to do. Right. It makes total sense too. Cause I think the alternatives are not presented as widely, you know, people don't know about intuitive eating and health at every size and the way that they know about weight loss. So it sort of makes sense that that would be the, the default. So I think it's probably a matter of publicizing and getting the word out about intuitive eating and health at every size. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think that's very important. Yeah. Well, speaking of publicizing and getting the word out, I want to tell people where they can find you and learn more about your practice. Oh, thanks. Yeah. So probably the best place to go would be our website. It's sulmannutrition.com. S as in Sam, O-O-L-M-A-N, nutrition.com. I'm having a little bit of technical problems with it today, but hopefully by the time this podcast comes out, that'll be all resolved. So that's probably the best place. You know, they can they can read some of our blogs, read a little bit more about what we're about, what we do, where we're located. So any, anybody who's, who's interested in our approach, who lives thereabouts in the Boston area, that's where we're located. We're located in the, uh, the Boston suburbs. So anybody around here who, who's looking for our kind of approach, you know, where there's not really many people out here who do what we do. So we're, we're the people to see. I love it. That's so great. And I'm going to put links to that in the show notes as well. So people can just oh, thank you. click and find your website. Yeah. Thank you so much, Jonah. It's really been a pleasure talking with you. And I so appreciate your sharing your, your story and your insights. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. So that's our show. Thanks again so much to our guests for being here and to you guys for listening. And we'll be back again next week with another brand new episode. Meanwhile, I'd love to stay in touch. And the best way to do that is via email. So you can go to christyharrison.com slash email to sign up for my VIP list. I'll send you info about new episodes of the podcast as they drop, as well as exclusive sneak previews of new episodes, exclusive giveaways and other special deals on the products and services I offer, special tips 
on how to make peace with food and learn to trust your body and a whole lot more. Sign up at christyharrison.com slash email. You can also subscribe via iTunes and leave us a nice rating and review, which is a great way to get the word out about the podcast and help other people find these important messages. Just go to iTunes from your computer or your podcast app, type in Food Psych to the search bar, click on the result that comes up under podcasts, and then click on ratings and reviews, and you can leave a rating and review right there. And I really appreciate all the five-star reviews and wonderful ratings that we've gotten because it's helped us climb really high right now in the rankings. So we're currently in the top 50 of all health podcasts, and that's really cool because we're competing against some of the diet mentality, sort of traditional weight management and body shaming types of messages that I'm trying to fight with this podcast. So we've really started to beat out a lot of the diety voices, and I'd love to continue climbing higher in the rankings to get this message out even further. So please leave us a nice rating and review. It's so very much appreciated. And thanks to everyone who's left reviews so far. The music you're hearing behind me now is by a band called AWOL, and the track is called Food, used under the Creative Commons license. Thanks so much for listening, and until next time, stay psyched. Stupid or scared, no work in the kitchen now. Who put you there in that perfect position now? Who just wants your food, and you ain't really beat. Have you ever 